Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Later this hour, we're going to hear from Ryan Loxmo. He's the author of Paul and His Team, What the Early Church Can Teach Us About Leadership and Influence. The book is published by Moody, and I think you'll find some very interesting things there. Uh, as you're studying the scriptures. Well, I'm excited that a 19-year tradition is continuing here in the Portland metro area. I'm talking about the Oregon Symphony Orchestra's presentation of a Gospel Christmas. And with me now is the uh, music director of the uh, of the Gospel Christmas, Gary Hemingway, who happens to be a longtime and, uh, and close friend. Gary, glad to have you with us today. Thanks, Georgine. How are you? <laughs> you know, it's kind of funny. I think this is the first time in years I've heard you refer to me as Georgine. I know. Um, I, I, I've been going back and forth whether I should actually call you George or not. But. That would be just fine. <laughs> well, congratulations on another season of the Gospel Christmas. Thank you. It's very exciting um, to be in our 19th season. That, that We pinch ourselves every year. We get to come back and do this. So, Absolutely. Now, for our listeners who aren't familiar with the Gospel Christmas, tell us a little mm-hmm. bit about what they can expect when they go to the uh, Schnitzer Concert Hall, the Oregon Symphony is is uh, up on the stage, and there's a gospel choir there as well. What can they expect? Yeah. Well, it, it's, I, I think it is a little difficult for a lot of people to wrap their heads around. Um, I've always just referred to it as a friendly collision. Um, yeah. <laughs> have, you know, you have these two distinct musical worlds coming together, and and it's been um, not only is it exciting to see this amalgamation take place. You're right in the middle of it, of these uh, you know two different entities coming together. But it's also been really wonderful to see how the two groups have grown in love and appreciation and mm-hmm. respect for one another. And it's something we I know the choir always looks forward to, and the, the symphony has always been so embracing and warm and and um, really very kind with all the singers and. So it's, it's, you know, you have a classical orchestra, a Grammy-nominated classical orchestra um, playing underneath a, a true gospel choir, and um, it's really exciting. One of the things I appreciate about gospel music, and this choir in particular, is this isn't just a matter of singing songs that happen to be in a particular style. These are people yeah. from our community who actually believe what they're singing, singing with enthusiasm, and and have real power and conviction behind every note. Right, you're you're, you're true. You're, you're telling the truth there. Uh, the, 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 uh, from time to time, I've had people interested in in um, auditioning for the choir, and they ask if we ever do anything that doesn't speak of Jesus. And I said, well, what makes gospel gospel is the gospel. <laughs> and it's, it's not just a style of music, and partly because the style just continues to evolve. Mm-hmm. Um, and it continues to embrace uh, elements of other different musical styles. But if you take the message away, it's no longer gospel music. Yeah, yeah. And I, you and I have many mutual friends who are singing in the choir, and they don't just sing. These people can sing. I think that's a better way of <laughs> describing. What are some of the songs that you all are going to be doing this year? Well, uh, let's see. we are going to be doing um, First Noel, which is um, uh, it's such a beautiful rendition of that particular piece with uh, Ashley Seamster as our soloist. She's 
she's fabulous. She's been on the road with Prince and um, is a, a local um, that just is sublime as a vocalist. Um, we're doing Israel Houghton's Christmas Worship Medley, which mm. is is one of the most powerful pieces. I think I, I think it stands up um, uh, to pretty much a, a, any uh, composition out there, regardless of genre. We're doing uh, Go Tell, we're doing uh, Jesus, Go Tell on the Mount, we're doing Jesus, Wonderful Child, we're doing the Hallelujah from Soulful Messiah. Um, uh, Dr. Floyd, the, the, the conductor, and myself have written a piece um, that uh, we're going to be doing um, Joy to the World from the Preacher's um, Wife. Um, and, um, yeah, I think that's probably a, a good representation of what we're doing. I know that the, the city of Portland has received the Gospel Christmas with open arms, and it's really heralded as one of the, the uh, best concerts of the year uh, presented by the Oregon Symphony. Um, I know there are only three performances, Friday, December the 8th, Saturday, December the 9th, and Sunday, December the 10th. And you all um, perform to packed out audiences. And I'm so grateful to remind our listeners that there's still opportunity for them to purchase tickets. Yeah, it, 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 um, it, it's really uncanny. I, I tell the choir all the time, please don't forget there's no other, there really is no other concert series like this taking place that we're aware of any place. But 19 years of doing gospel music with a Grammy-nominated Grammy orchestra um, and uh, doing it uh, in uh, one of the major cities in the United States, and we just get to come back year after year after year. Um, and so, yeah, 7.30 on Friday night and Saturday night, and then a 4 p.m. Uh, matinee on Sunday, which has turned out to be one of, one of the funnest of the three. Um, people have really embraced that mm-hmm. matinee, so, yeah. Well, it's a it's a great opportunity. I should mention that Charles Floyd is the uh, conductor. Terry Davis, the guest conductor, Northwest Community Gospel Choir will be performing, and Gary Hemingway, mm-hmm. the music director. It's got to be a real thrill to you to be able to conduct the the choir, but also the orchestra. Yeah, yeah, it, it, you know, with fear and trembling. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny when you pick up a baton and there's no orchestra. It's it's so light, but then the moment you walk up in front of this orchestra. It weighs a thousand pounds. You know, my the curious thing about this whole thing for me though is after nineteen years, we've yet to have Georgine Rice come and sing. Well, well, just gonna call me out because <laughs> George can sing. I don't know if anybody out there knows this. George can sing her song in the place. One of the and one of the finest vocalists in the in, in I think in the Northwest. Well, thank you. I, that's very kind of you. Perhaps one day mm-hmm. we can get together on that. Well, I want to encourage our listeners, you can get your tickets. You can go to orsymphony.org, or you can Google mm-hmm. Gospel Christmas and uh, purchase your tickets. But again, this is one of the highlights of the Oregon Symphony calendar, and I would go so far mm-hmm. as to say the, the calendar generally for music in the Portland metro area. Uh, you're going to go away inspired, enthusiastic, and ready to celebrate the birth of Christ. There's no fluff in this concert. It's going to be straight up great Christmas music. And Gary, they I should mention that you are a renowned pianist yourself, uh, jazz and otherwise, gospel, jazz, every genre. And they're, they're really fortunate to have you as part of this, uh, this whole collaboration. So we're looking forward to, I think we're going to be there Friday night, so we're looking forward to celebrating with oh, you. I know we'll be on our great. feet, we'll be clapping and <laughs> joining in. So uh, thanks so much for all the hard work and for letting us know uh, that this year there are still tickets available and our listeners are invited. You betcha. Thank you, George. Hey, we're recording this year, so. All right. Excellent. Yeah. Hey, thanks, Gary. 
Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Again, Gary Hemingway, the music director for the Gospel Christmas presented by the Oregon Symphony. And again, you can Google Oregon Symphony Gospel Christmas or go to orsymphony.org and look for the Gospel Christmas there. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Well, most Christians know something of the Apostle Paul's life and his ministry. But what about the incredible team of influencers that he assembled around himself and mobilized? Who were they? And how did Paul lead this team to accomplish God's purposes? Well, even more importantly, what can we learn from their successes and their failures? And how can we imitate their qualities? Well, these are the questions that inspired my next guest, Ryan Loxmo, uh, to write Paul and his team. Uh, what the early church can teach us about leadership and influence. I'm excited to talk about uh, these individuals whose names we read past rather quickly, but perhaps know very little about. Well, my guest, uh, Dr. Loxmo, is a lead pastor at Real Hope Community Church in Houston, uh, in the Houston area. He earned his master's degree in New Testament at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and his doctorate in New Testament at the University of Denver. He's the author of Blurry, Bringing Clarity to the Bible, and has written small group curricula for Lifeway, as well as articles for the uh, Lexham Bible Dictionary. He previously served as a small groups pastor at a multi-site Church lives in Richmond, Texas, rather, with his wife and their two children. And again, he joins us today to talk about his latest book on Paul and his team, what the early church can teach us about leadership and influence. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. You know, reading um, Paul's epistles in the book of Acts, it's easy to assume that um, the big name person is the whole story. While overlooking those names that are briefly mentioned, you see them moving throughout the storyline, but perhaps overlook the significant role they play because they are not labeled official leaders. And your book really calls our attention to those who are playing roles that are significant that we might otherwise overlook. Yeah, that's right. Uh, You know, when Paul spoke about the people in his circle, the people serving with him in ministry, uh, he spoke about them with very uh, lofty terms, co-worker, fellow worker, uh, in Romans 16, for example, the end, uh, the final chapter of Romans, there's this long list of people uh, who are known to Paul, and, and he's, he's describing them with these terms that show how important they were. He talks about people caring for him and uh, being in the trenches of ministry with him. So they were clearly very important uh, to what he was doing. I think one of the reasons they're lost to us is um, a little bit of a question of genre. You know, by contrast with Jesus' disciples, you get the Gospels, which are historical narrative, and you have all these stories about the disciples and what's happening. And in the case of Paul's team, we do read some historical narrative in the book of Acts, but it's very focused on Paul. And there's all these mentions of these people in his letters. And because of the, the type of literature that a letter is and the uh, amount of space you know, that he, he dedicates to these sections, these people are just kind of mentioned in passing, and Paul assumed that those people would be receiving the letter, so he's not always explaining mm-hmm. who these people are. So you have to kind of piece it all together. You take the book of Acts and then these sections of his letters that are so easy to skim over, and you piece it all together, and this picture begins to emerge of this team that was so instrumental to what Paul was doing as they shared Christ in the first century. Now, why do you think it's important for us to look at those figures who are not on the platform, their name isn't on the marquee, but played a a significant role (laughs) in uh, walking alongside Paul and laboring in the trenches? I think it's very important because 
you know, each of us has been given a certain amount of influence over someone else. Uh, some of us might not think of ourselves as leaders because mm-hmm. we're not pastors, we don't have a big blog or something like that. But God has given all of us influence and a role to play, and He's given us gifts. And I have found it's not that helpful um, to focus on people like Moses or Peter and say, well, look, they were these unlikely leaders because of you know personal shortcomings or something. So therefore, look at, you know, we should all be leaders. Because I think for most people, they still view people like Peter and Moses as these larger-than-life figures, because they went on to have these incredible ministries. But for average people who are just living life, um, you know, trying to guide their families spiritually, trying to find their place to serve in the local church, you have these people in Scripture who truly were kind of behind-the-scenes figures that did amazing things. And, And so I think there's a real inspiration to be found there. Luke is a great example. Luke mm-hmm. is mentioned by name, you know, three times just in passing in Paul's letters, but he wrote Luke and Acts, which together by word count is more than all of Paul's letters combined. It's 27% of the New Testament that Luke wrote, but he was he was a little bit behind the scenes, at least from our vantage point, in reading the letters. And there's so many stories like that that I think can really inspire people about the kind of impact they can have for God's kingdom. Yeah, there are two things that come to mind that really strike me about their mentions in Scripture by Paul. One is that he recognized he did not do what God had called him to do alone. He relied on Mm. a collection of people who came alongside and worked with him. And that's true today. It's Mm. not just the pastor who does the work of the ministry. In fact, he equips the church to do the work of the ministry. So we, we play a significant role, perhaps more so than we imagine in God's work. And the second thing is that Paul would bother to mention them. That, that says a lot about him, but it also says a lot about them. He recognized that he was working as part of a much larger team. And that should give us all a bit of hope and perhaps a bit of humility at the same time. I think so. That's absolutely right. You know, Paul uh, was very strategic with these letters. Of course, most of the content of the letters was teaching. It was, Mm -hmm. you know, theological content or, you know, matters related to the life of the church. But he was deliberate to mention these people because I think one of the chapters in my book, uh, I, I use the term relational stewardship, mm-hmm. that, that Paul wanted people to feel visible and valued, and he wasn't going to waste an opportunity in a letter to encourage people, to say hello to people he knew on the other end of receiving the letter, uh, to, to send greetings from people who were with him. I think he, he was very deliberate about uh, stewarding those relational connections, because you think about a letter, you know, it might have taken two months for someone to carry it from where Paul was to, to the destination. And so he maximized those opportunities to build people up, encourage them, let them know how valuable they are to what he's doing and to him personally. Um, I love these these comments in Romans 16. Uh, Paul says, uh, greet Rufus and his mother, who's been like a mother to me. <laughs> mm. What a significant thing to say. Yes. You know, we, don't, we don't know who that was, but Paul is saying, again, like you just alluded to, I didn't do this on my own. I need care. I, I've got people looking after me. And, and that's, a, I think, very motivating and inspiring thing to know. We're talking this afternoon about the book, Paul and His Team, What the Early Church Can Teach Us About Leadership and Influence. Ryan Loxmo is a Ph.D. He's the author of the book. We're going to continue our conversation in just a few moments, but I do need to take a quick break. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing a conversation with uh, Dr. Ryan Loxmo. He's the author most recently of Paul and His Team, What the Early Church Can Teach Us About Leadership and Influence. And I appreciate that it shines a spotlight on those who worked alongside Paul that we might overlook in reading through the scriptures. Now, there are um, a collection of people that that are named in uh, the epistles and also in the book of Acts. Um, tell us a, a little bit about a few of them that we might have uh, overlooked, but Paul thought enough of them to mention. Yeah, so I, I think uh, Priscilla and Aquila, uh, the couple that worked together with Paul, uh, it's hard to overstate their impact. Mm-hmm. You know, they were kind of in the commercial sector at a business in Rome. Then they came to Corinth where they met Paul. They worked with him. Some of the language uh, in describing how they work together makes it seem like Paul probably lived with them and worked with them. And then when he moved on from there to Ephesus, they went with him, opened up shop there. And then when Paul moved on, they stayed in that city. And you get glimpses of them you know, teaching people, Priscilla, for example, straightening out uh, some theology of Apollos, the traveling biblical teacher at that time. And, and then Priscilla and Aquila find their way back to Rome. So here's a couple who has businesses in multiple cities. They're hosting churches in multiple cities. And it's hard to overstate the impact of a contribution like that. When you're in the first century, Christianity is a new thing. It's viewed with suspicion um, in many parts of the culture. And to have a, an ally, a group of people like that, was so um, beneficial for Paul. Another one is Erastus. He's mentioned at the end of Romans, he was a government official in the city of Corinth. That was a big deal to have someone like that in your corner when there was a lot of social antagonism toward Christians at that time. And so you see Paul building his relationships with people in the commercial sector, in the government sector, uh, to say nothing of all of the people like Epaphras and Onesimus and Tychicus, names like that, of people who carried the letters, Mm -hmm. who risked their lives and spent weeks walking and, you know, with these scrolls uh, in their bag that wound up being Ephesians or Colossians and things like that. So some incredible contributions from these people. You know, it's interesting. You think about somebody who's given a letter, can you carry this from here to there? And they don't really have any idea the significance of what they're doing in in uh, carrying the dispatches of the Apostle Paul that will become the scriptures that inform mm. Christianity for the <laughs> generations to come. It really yeah. is uh, It's fascinating to consider, and I appreciate that you put mm-hmm. a little bit of uh, flesh and bone on the names that we might be familiar with but don't know much about. Now, in addition to the personalities that were working alongside Paul, I appreciate that you also um, give us a glimpse into how they, for example, adapted to the culture, uh, doctrinal and relational challenges that they faced, and how they navigated mm. their time in successfully bringing the gospel uh, to places that were hearing it for the first time and where the church mm. was just beginning uh, to grow. So how they actually carried out the work of, of evangelism, mm. if you will, is also a major feature of your book. That's right. They were uh, constantly seeking common ground where they could find it. And I think that is such an important example for us today. Uh, they didn't have a one-size-fits-all approach to how they spoke about Christ when they were able to come into a new city and find a synagogue. They would go there because they knew there would be Jews. They had some familiarity with the Scriptures. So we've got some cultural and religious common ground. Let's start there. But there were other places like Lystra, which is in modern Turkey, um, and uh, Athens and other places that were more Greco-Roman, kind of a pagan background, where they couldn't assume any 
knowledge of the Jewish scriptures, they didn't assume that knowledge. And you see Paul and Barnabas and others speaking about God in ways that would be intelligible as a first introduction to a pagan audience. And, and I think the lesson for us there is to be creative and adaptive mm-hmm. in how we talk about Jesus and to not uh, view ourselves as being kind of at war with the culture in some way, uh, even if the culture is antagonistic to us, because certainly it was yes. the Christians in the first century, but they were relentless about building bridges and finding common ground, even with people who, who viewed them with suspicion, and in some cases, hostility. I think that's a very important lesson for us today as Christians. Oh, absolutely. How they navigated those sensitive cross-cultural situations. You also yes. uh, emphasize the fact that they persisted through difficulty and fractured relationships, and they certainly had mm. uh, those as well. Unity was important to them, and they somehow managed to to work through that difficulty. What can we learn from those relationships? I think we learn a couple things. They were very honest, the early Christians, about their divisions. We see it all over the place. It's in the book of Acts. It's all over Paul's letters. They did not pretend that they weren't having conflict, personal conflict, theological conflict. It's right there for us to observe in the book of Acts and Paul's letters. It's all over the place. And so I think we can be honest about where we disagree. Um, I think they showed a resolve uh, to pursue reconciliation wherever it's possible. Of course, the famous split between Paul and Barnabas Mm -hmm. over whether to go on in ministry with Mark. You know, these are close friends who've been in ministry together for years, and all of a sudden they, they can't even think of going on in ministry together. It was such a sharp disagreement. And yet we see, you know, at the end of some of Paul's letters, um, you know, Colossians, it's also mentioned in Second Timothy, Mark is now part of Paul's ministry. And Paul's saying, you know, bring Mark with you. He's very helpful to me in my ministry. A decade earlier, Paul couldn't even think about working with Mark. And so you, you see that that reconciliation had occurred. And, and, of course, Paul had divisions with whole congregations like the church at Corinth. And, and we see particularly in Second Corinthians, which is like a walking into a family fight. You don't even know how it got started. Mm-hmm. You read that letter and you just see how um, anguished Paul is over that division and how honest he is and how elated he is that it seems to be that they're uh, coming back together into fellowship. And so we can see that they're very honest about it and that they never gave up on that reconciliation. Mm. Another thing we can learn uh, from Paul and his team is how they equipped others for the work of the ministry and developed leaders to replace them, um, which is a, a significant thing when you consider that each of this team, they're they're the first uh, the first uh, round, but there are others that follow. They did a significant work because the church continued and grew, and we are the result of of that faithful uh, caretaking. That's right. And in that sense, they fall, followed in a great tradition of God's people, Moses preparing Joshua, Elijah preparing Elisha, and here you have you know, Jesus preparing his disciples, and, and you see Paul, you know, raising up people like Timothy um, and and, you know, unleashing him for incredible ministry, Titus as well, saying, hey, go to the island of Crete, the largest of the Greek isles, and sort out all the, the leadership issues and challenges there. And and uh, part of it was out of necessity. The, the, the church, everybody was, it was all new. You know, everybody, <laughs> he had to develop and unleash leaders. There there were not that many Christians around, mm-hmm. but uh, he did it. And and I think in a surprising way, uh, he he relied on some relatively new believers uh, to do some significant ministry while still kind of pastoring 
from a distance via letter and his network of friends who were constantly traveling around sharing these letters and those sorts of things. So, yes, we definitely see a ministry of investing in and preparing leaders. I love the remark that Paul makes about Timothy, uh, where he talks about his mother and grandmother and how they had been instrumental in shaping his faith. And, and you know, here Paul is kind of handing off the baton to Timothy. So great example for us to, to never view ourselves as irreplaceable. Mm-hmm. You know, Paul didn't, Paul didn't view himself as irreplaceable. So we certainly need to be thinking about who's coming next. You make a distinction in the subtitle between leadership and influence. And while not all of us have positions of leadership, we do have, as you mentioned earlier in our conversation, we do have the gift of influence. And this book really is for all of us, is it not? It absolutely is. It's, you know, leadership sounds like a formalized thing, but someone is looking to us as an example in some way. Certainly for parents, but, but not just that. In our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, on social media, there are people paying attention to us. God has given us some level of influence. And while the lessons of Paul and his team most closely resemble what we think of as pastoral ministry, the lessons transcend that. And they, they really are just about our lives of faith as believers in Christ. What, what can we learn from them on, the, on how they spoke about Jesus, why they did the things they did, and the lessons are, are applicable uh, in our families, in our church communities, in our uh, neighborhoods. And so, yes, I was very uh, intentional about wanting to write this book in such a way that it wasn't just for pastors and kind of formalized Christian leaders. It certainly speaks to that world, mm-hmm. but I, I, I think it's, I think all of us can, can learn a lot from what Paul and his team did. Well, I would absolutely agree. I've been a reader of the, and a studier of the scriptures for many years. This is an approach that I hadn't uh, taken before. So I plan to take the book home and go over it again very slowly in my <laughs> own study of the Bible to try to glean some things that I might have missed yeah. along the way. Uh, Dr. Loxmo, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Again, the title of the book, Paul and His Team, What the Early Church Can Teach Us About Leadership and Influence. Uh, Dr. Ryan Loxmo is the author and the book is published by Moody. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, you may or may not have noticed that I wasn't live in studio yesterday. I'm struggling a little bit with my throat, and so thought uh, by taking uh, part of yesterday off that might help strengthen my throat. Went home a little early and tried to get some rest, but we missed our opportunity that I promised would be yours uh, every day this week to give away a, a two CD set, the Christmas Jubilee uh, two CD bundle featuring the Booth Brothers and Greater Vision and Legacy Five. So I wanted to uh, give away a second uh, set of CDs in this hour. We gave away the first in the first hour uh, to uh, to catch up, and I apologize for missing. Uh, the mark, which I set uh, earlier in the week. But what we do have is the Christmas Jubilee 2-CD bundle. And again, it features the Booth Brothers, Greater Vision, and Legacy 5. You can also see them perform live at uh, the Christmas Jubilee Tour. That's coming up tomorrow at Salem First Baptist Church at 7 o'clock p.m. You can go to kpdq.com for more details, and you can purchase your tickets there as well. Again, that's uh, tomorrow, 7 o'clock p.m. at Salem First Baptist Church. So we want to give away uh, those tickets to the third caller and the number to call 1-800-845-2162, 800-845-2162.
So good luck, and uh, we'll have one more pair to give away tomorrow. Keeping in mind, the concert is actually tomorrow night, so if you're in the Salem area, you're probably uh, in the best position to uh, win uh, the CDs, and uh, you can check out the tickets online. Well, I, uh, as I mentioned, I'm a bit under the weather. I've uh, had a cold that I've been fighting for quite some time, and it uh, reared its ugly head a bit more aggressively. Um, I think that was um, Tuesday or Wednesday, and so I've been trying to nurse myself back to health. And as you might also know, the Singing Christmas Tree resumes tonight, uh, Thursday night, Friday, two performances on Saturday and one on Sunday. So uh, trying to not only do my job here, but be prepared for a night of wonderful music, which will be presented by the Singing Christmas Tree Choir's 350 voices. And I don't want mine to be the only one that's sort of you know, honking off of uh, out of key. So um, anyway, that's been uh, what's been going on here. And uh, I've got some things up my sleeve for tonight's performance. But uh, that's kind of been the, the challenge for me the last uh, several days. I also wanted to take this opportunity, which I haven't done in quite some time, to bring you up to date on Dan Rice. As many of you know, he contracted a heart infection um, this summer, and we've been battling that uh, for months. He had a pick line installed, and the first round of six weeks of uh, very strong, they refer to them as nuclear antibiotics, went on for six weeks, and we uh, did everything that we were supposed to do. Dan is incredibly um, healthy, aside from the uh, congenital heart defect that he that required a heart valve replacement many years ago and has been replaced a couple of times since. Um, he did very well, but it didn't kill the infection. We waited a month after the pick line was removed. Uh, we did a blood culture only to find that the infection was uh, virulent and still present. So we were called back into the hospital. He spent a couple of days there. They put another pick line in and we started another round of six weeks of nuclear antibiotics. We were told, and this isn't exactly a medical way of uh, putting it, but they said that this second round uh, was like a heat seeking missile. Uh, it would it would f- go to the site of the infection and be more effective and more um, uh, pointed than the previous round. And so we were looking forward to that uh, working. We were also told that there is whenever you have any kind of an artificial anything in your system, whether that's an artificial hip or a knee or a heart valve in this case, uh, there tends to be what they call a sort of bacterial slime that can form around the metal parts that are foreign to your body. And it's very difficult to get rid of that, it's difficult to get the the medicines, in this case antibiotics, directly to that. And so it's it poses something of a challenge. So it's not uncommon for someone to have an artificial anything to deal with this kind of infection in the body. And it sort of serves as a magnet uh, where you and I might have an infection and our body fights it off and that's the end of that. When you have an artificial valve or any other body part, it, it poses some unique challenges. So we went through this second round of nuclear antibiotics, the heat-seeking missile that was designed to get rid of the infection. But we were told with an asterisk that uh, the likelihood of getting rid of it altogether was fairly slim for the reasons I've just explained. It's hard to get the antibiotics right to where the problem is. But what they hoped the antibiotics would do would prevent it from spreading and that if, for example, it breaks off a piece of tissue with the infection, that would otherwise go to a, you know your brain or your heart or something and create uh, problems, the antibiotic would take care of it and it wouldn't flood through your body and create greater problems. So we went through the uh, six weeks, the second round, and we had a blood culture. I say we because, well, Dan and I are one, and that's the way we see it. 
We went for the blood culture um, the Friday before last and went to see the infectious diseases doctor the day before yesterday. And we're told that in that particular blood culture, and this is how they described it, they weren't able to detect the infection in his blood. Now, I take that as a thank you, Jesus. <laughs> we're, we're free and clear. Uh, the infectious diseases doctor also said she's cautiously optimistic. She um, has a, a high degree of respect for bacterium because she knows how virulent they can be. And that um, while they weren't able to detect it in his blood at that moment, that doesn't mean it's gone. Um, so what we're attempting to do at this point is live with the, the possibility and the likelihood that there is a certain level of infection uh, in his uh, heart valve that would be treated if it were to enter his bloodstream or any other part of the body with antibiotics that he's now taking orally and will likely take the rest of his life. Uh, he was taking three 500 milligram antibiotics, amoxicillin, a day uh, until yesterday, and they said you can lower that to two a day, which is great news. And then in three months, we'll go back and uh, determine whether or not he can reduce that to just one a day. Uh, what we've been told is that if the infection were to spike and if it couldn't be controlled in this way with antibiotics, they wouldn't do another heart valve replacement because of the scar tissue. In fact, I only learned it this time around when they went in for his third surgery uh, on the heart valve when it failed in 2011. It took him, I think Dan said, four or five hours just to get through the scar tissue to get to the heart valve so they could begin the surgery so they don't uh, they don't do that a fourth time, and they would uh, require a heart transplant, which was uh, it's a very sobering thought that the heart that you have loved and cherished and Dan has lived by would be replaced by someone else's. Not to mention the fact that someone has someone's life has to end in order for someone else to inherit uh, the heart. So all of that said, it's uh, it's a very sobering prospect, and we're thankful that. At this point, it doesn't look like that's what's going to happen. So thank you, Jesus. Now, I, I say that because I, I know that our lives are in his hands. And whatever happens, if they were to call us back tomorrow and say the infection is back, we would see that, okay, Lord, you've called us to a ministry with medical professionals. What do you want us to do in this situation um, that would bring glory and honor to your name? So we're not suggesting that God only works with, uh, yes, you're, you're permanently healed, uh, he can use us in whatever circumstance, and if um, God chooses to allow this thing to come back, I know I have a very dear friend. She was a Bible study fellowship teacher. I, I just love Candace Carter is her name. She has cancer and has been battling that for quite some time. She is uh, in severe pain. She's struggling with that. We've been praying for her for quite some time, but as I read her letters to us in which she extols the virtue of the love of God and his care for her and uh, ask for the ability to persevere and honor him in the midst of a very difficult circumstance. It reminds me that in whatever circumstance we're in, he is working those things together for our good, whether that's to develop character or to reveal some aspect of his attributes to us. So we're not uh, we're not holding God hostage to a particular outcome. We're trusting him. We have walked with him for many years. We didn't question his hand when things were going perfectly well. And when they're difficult, we're not going to question him either. But we do know um, that we love him. We're called according to his purpose, and he's going to work all things together uh, for our ultimate good, whatever the outcome might be. So that's the update on Dan Rice. And I wanted to at least give you uh, some uh, insight in what's happening. I'd appreciate it if you'd keep us in your prayer. We are doing well. Dan is cheerful and happy. He's not fearful about the future. 
he says uh, and with some regularity now that, you know, tomorrow is not promised to us, but we want to live faithfully today. And on the other side of that tomorrow, should the end come, is uh, an encounter with Christ that exceeds everything we've ever experienced. So there's no fear uh, in our household. There is joy and contentment and gladness and anticipation and hope. And we hope that you will uh, have the same, whatever your circumstance happens to be as well. Tomorrow, we're going to lighten things up, assuming I'm still able to speak tomorrow. (laughs) So I hope you will join us and have a great night. Hey, by the way, I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering, James Blind for engineering a portion of and producing all of today's program. And thanks for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a good night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.